Please pronounce your name correctly for me. My name is Heidi Zuckerman. And the first thing I generally like to know about people is sort of how they got made into the, the industry and the creative fields that they are. So like, did you have creative parents? Was it some teachers, some life experience that sort of took you down the path of the arts? So I like to say that my parents really don't like art, but I had the great privilege of having a grandmother who was a collector and I was the oldest grandchild and I had the amazing opportunity to travel with her from the time I was eight and in third grade and was exposed to art through her and found my love of art super early and on a three week trip where she pulled me out of school and my assignment from my teachers was to keep a journal I went to the V&A Museum in London, bought postcards, cataloged them, described the objects, and basically still do this thing, uh, do that thing to this day. Really? Yeah, I mean, I, I try over the course of my career to do like morning pages and other things like this. And when I do it, I find it to be incredibly helpful and fantastic, but it's finding the ability to sort of separate that time and devote that time to it that is the most difficult part I find. One of the things that I started doing during this quarantine is a daily blog post, a music medium, and it's called hashtag wisdom. And I write one every day. It's a little piece of wisdom that I take from a specific work of art or a few works of art by a single artist. Yes, I've noticed that. So you also, you have your podcast, and I assume you're still recording your podcast, yes? I am. I recorded one yesterday. Okay, and you run your, your how do you pronounce it? High Z. Thank you. I'm like, hi Z, his art. Like, no, hi Z. So it's my nickname because my name is Heidi Zuckerman. So people call me hi Z. So it's hi Z.art. All right. And you come from the background of the, you know, the high esteemed intellectual museums and all this. Why would you choose to leave that and then sort of like go on your own? Because like, to me, like that's the pinnacle of a career is to be at that kind of place. So, I mean, why? <laughs> I think you have to look at a longer trajectory so I'm a member of the Young Presidents Organization, YPO, and a few years ago, I was asked to tell my story using the hero's journey. And a guy by the name of Rand Stegen was assigned to me as my coach. And I didn't know anything about him or the Stegen Institute. I didn't know anything about the hero's journey, though, of course, we all know it, but maybe we don't know it by name. And when he explained to me the arc of that narrative and how it's basically the history of Western mythology, and I said, well, I'll tell my, I'll tell the story of the Aspen Art Museum. And he said, no, no, that's only one piece of your story. So what, what's your story? So my story, as I told it that day, went back to that trip to London in third grade and the role of art in my life. And so the early part of my career was in a commercial gallery working for a woman named Paula Kirkaby at Smith Anderson and then at the ICA in Philadelphia when I was a student at 
the University of Pennsylvania, and then in a commercial gallery in New York, and then having my own alternative space with my former husband, and then joining the museum field because I wanted to have a broader audience. I wanted an audience of people that were uninitiated to avant-garde contemporary art, which is what I was showing in my alternative space. And then I moved up the ranks in museums, got a broader and broader audience. And then what I realized was, again, somehow that audience was still limited um, because people who come to museums already understand the value of art, even if it's their first visit. No one has to go to a museum. It's not a hospital. It's not a courthouse. No one makes you go there. So I wanted to take what I love, which is contemporary art, and see if I could extend the audience again. So it's really a, a longer trajectory. And the way that I'm working on doing that is through very micro intimate experiences, these invitation-only art talks, invitation-only art trips, and then super global, these books, podcasts, I'm working on some TV shows, and I'm working on some super high-level brand collaborations. So it's less about leaving something um, that everyone else wants, which I understand, but actually doing something that I think hopefully will be even more impactful. Well, I also often hear people that say like, oh, this was my goal, my career goal, whatever. And then when they actually attain what would be their career goal, I'm putting that in quotation marks, that it's not as fulfilling as they once thought it was. It's less about that. I love museums and I had such a privileged place to run the Aspen Art Museum for 14 and a half years and to build something that I hope will be a permanent fixture in that community and hopefully on the global art scene. And it's more about having been there long enough to have done everything I wanted to do there. Uh, for a while, I tried deepening my experience. Then I tried broadening my experience. And then I just realized we had commissioned uh, an essay by a guy by the name of Andrew Travers, who's the art critic of the Aspen Times, to tell the history of the Aspen Art Museum. And it was largely focused. So it, that was on the 40th anniversary of the museum, which was last summer, the summer of 2019. And 40 year history, I was there about 15 years, a little bit less. And so it certainly wasn't my story. Again, it was the story of the institution, but I was a key character in that story. And when I read it on the way to my college reunion, it just felt like a period. It felt like punctuation. And I like to say no one wants to be the last person at the party. I just felt like it was time for me to leave it into the hands of the next person to do with it what they thought they should. Sounds great. Yeah. Sounds like it was a sort of a poetic uh, justice sort of ending to it. So that's, it's lovely. Now, you keep talking about the stories of things and stories of things. And this is actually a conversation I've been having with other guests on the podcast about contemporary art and how a lot of the term sort of story of story behind seems to be becoming more prevalent in contemporary art. Is this something that you've noticed also? I haven't noticed it in terms of work that's being made, but I've always thought of exhibition making as a form of storytelling. And 
the way objects get placed in space, what you encounter first, what you encounter last, how the objects interact with each other based on proximity and distance, the way you can set the temperature in the space, whether there's a soundtrack, whether it's audible or just in the viewer's head. I feel like that's all part of great exhibition making is the story, the narrative that you lay out for your visitor. So you were part of the actual sort of curatorial practice of it. You actually designed the exhibitions and everything? Forever. Oh, I love doing that. I so, so envy that. That's, that's so much fun because, I mean, you really get to construct how people inter- engage with it, how they relate to them, how, they, how the space flows and how people um, just experience not only like the individual pieces, but the pieces as a, a story. Exactly. And I really believe that works of art have their own distinct characters and personalities and some get along really well with others and some, you know, are just irascible and, you know, there's just nowhere to put them. And those are often the ones that make the exhibition something really special, right? The exhibition that proves the rule or, yeah, something that that just augments the experience. Oh, yeah. I mean, I studied a little bit with a guy, Walter Hopps, from the Manila Collection. Loved him. Oh, my God. He was so great with, like, thinking about every element. I mean, I even love the fact that you were talking about, like, the temperature of each space. Because that's, you know, all the senses can be engaged in these kinds of uh, situations that aren't often available to a lot of other exhibition spaces but in a museum and an institution like that you really have the opportunity to use not just the visual but the you know the tactile the audio all the different senses which is really quite magnificent sometimes i did an exhibition at the aspen art museum which was about memory it was called the residue of memory and it was how every person that we interact with in our life leaves some kind of residue on us. And one of the works in that show was a scent, a smell piece uh, that I had commissioned from Friedrich Kunath. So I like to even have smell sometimes included in exhibitions. Nice. I like it. All right. So what is the what is it that you're doing now? Like I, I look through your website. So you have your podcast, you have your uh, f- philanthropic work, you work on some boards. It sounds like you have a bunch of projects coming up. So give me a little insight into like, so what's the daily life of, uh, of Heidi or High Z, High Z? So my daily life starts the same way every day. I'm a super ritualistic person. I do the same five things every morning. So I get up, I make my bed, I journal, I drink a matcha latte with oat milk. I sometimes meditate and then exercise. Other times I exercise and then meditate. And then I start to correspond with people projects that I'm working on. I review past podcasts that I've done to edit them and send them to my producer. I reach out to friends and colleagues and people I haven't met before and invite them to come on the podcast. I am right now super open to conversations with anyone that I think is interesting. So 
like people reach out to me and I'll say yes to a call or I'll reach out to someone because I read an article about them and would love to just hop on the phone. And that collaboration has always been key to my practice. That's the way I've always worked with artists. I've never been um, dictatorial. I've always been collaborative. That's the way I've always worked with my team. And I feel that this is a time even before the COVID crisis where people were trying to figure out what's next and what matters and what's meaningful. And so I spend a lot of my day thinking and uh, writing and listening and reading. And it feels like a very creative and productive time. Yeah, it's interesting you say that, like you have certain rituals because I have this thing of an ongoing debate. My wife is an accountant, so she's very organized and all this kind of stuff. And I have this thing where I basically say that I need as a creative person a certain amount of rituals in order to allow for a certain amount of unknowns or spontaneous or, or randoms. But like if if I can't have the ritual, the, the spontaneous somehow just don't happen. Um, so like that, there's that need of that really lovely balance of like a certain amount of control to allow for a certain amount of chaos. I think that's right. And I feel really fortunate to be a member of a couple of different communities that are very productive for me. So yesterday, for example, I had a call, a, a Zoom call, and we were using Zoom before, but a Zoom call with my scouting party in the Dragon's Gap at the Stegen Institute. So I know those words need to be explained. So the Stegen Institute is this leadership institute in Dallas, Texas, which was founded by Rand Stegen, who I referenced earlier. The Dragon's Gap is the Advanced Leadership Program, and I've been in this program for almost a year. We started last July, and it is divided up into quarters, and we look at different things each quarter, and a lot of it is personal development work, but as it applies to leadership as well, and we're broken up, so there are 28 people in the Dragon's Gap program this year, and then we're broken up into five or six, I'm not sure, I think it's five scouting parties. And so we have these audio, you know, Zoom calls every two weeks where we work on different things. So yesterday we were talking about the notion of polarity and how polarity can be applied, not just to ourselves and our own personal leadership, but different circumstances and situations where we're interacting with other people. So when people think about polarity, they think about the idea of just like yes and no or black and white. And it's really about celebrating the both and, which as a creative person, I'm super comfortable with. And that's what I am basically always advocating for anyway. You know, like how can it be both things at the same time? But most people are less comfortable in that in that dualistic space, right? So an example would be, well, could you be both fearful and courageous? So having a conversation like this, for example, saying yes to someone that I've never met before and spending however long doing this is something that I could approach with a fear. You know, what am I going to be asked? What if I don't know the answer? Uh, what if it's embarrassing, but also courageous, right? Like, I don't have 
um, anything to hide. I could learn something. I'm excited to have to be able to think on my feet. I often talk about my superpower as being spontaneous brilliance. So if I don't put myself in situations where I get to test that or flex that muscle, then maybe it'll go away. So that's a, a way of approaching this example from a pluralist, pluralistic sense. Okay. Makes sense. I mean, I like one of the things I enjoy most about these conversations is that I get to act the fool in many ways, like, because it basically the art world but a wise is like, fool. Well, I try to be wise, but I end up being foolish and that's fine. I don't mind taking on that role because I find that the more I sort of say stupid things or, or imply stupid ideas that I, I learn more when I express ideas that are good ideas, I just get a, a confirmation that my idea was right. So I didn't really learn anything. So I'm all about like saying stupid things and learning that I'm doing them wrong or I thought about them wrong or whatever. So yeah, um, these conversations are very helpful for me in that way, but, uh, but I, it does make me very nervous to always have to be a bit foolish, <laughs> but yeah. That's well, what we do. one of the things that I love about art is that I don't feel like there is ever a right answer. And so I, one of the TV projects that I'm working on is called, I don't get it. I have heard that from my brother my entire life. Yes. Which is so great. You go right into that space of a place that it might be closed off and figure out how there might be a way to let a little bit of light in. And, you know, once there's a small crack, right, then that's where the, the transformation can potentially come from. So one of the problems that I'm trying to solve is that people think contemporary art is not available to them. So the fight that I'm picking is saying like, yeah, lots of people don't care anything about art. And then people sometimes have to say like, well, wait, I, I care about art. So I'm like, okay. Step up. How do you care about art? Tell me. It is an interesting dilemma because, I mean, with all the government support for uh, institutions and things like this, the, there are a lot of people that say, oh, I don't care about art. Why is so much money spent on these things? It's not something I engage with and all this. But yet they do. They, you know, they still hang art in their homes. They still um, go to the, some of the people still go to the events, even if they don't like the art, they still appreciate that it exists. And I mean, I don't think that anybody, no matter how, well, okay, fine. There can be some people, but most people in the world uh, are still affected by it. So it influences their life in some way. And it's just the question of trying to make them aware of the fact that that influences there. I'll give an example, actually, like my wife, not a huge fan of art. I'm so sorry. I'm ragging on my wife, but not a huge fan of art. But we one day I talked to her about the fact that like design and art and how like her clothing, you know, is influenced by art. Our dishware can oftentimes be, you know, if we have like nice uh, handmade dishware or something like this, it can be influenced by art that all design and advertising and marketing and stuff is in some ways is always touched by the arts and the creative industry. So even if you don't necessarily go to a museum or 
purchase art from a gallery, these things still affect and influence your life? I think one of the larger opportunities is to make people aware of the things that they're not aware of. And so art can sort of play the fool, if you will, in that circumstance too. Because once people start to notice things they haven't noticed previously, then there can be a compounding effect there. Oh, yeah. I mean, skilled craftsmen and artistry is also a key element in that because, I mean, a, a beautifully designed bed or, or cars, cars are magnificent works of art if done, if elevated to that level. I mean, yes, most of them are utilitarian, but there are some stunning works of art that are cars and motorcycles and all these kinds of things. So, I mean, anything can be elevated to this level of, of a masterful expression in some way. I also think that culture is what keeps people company. So as people are in their homes right now, I was going to say, especially right now, I'm sure people are listening to music. I'm sure they're watching Netflix. I am sure that they are probably coloring or, you know, giving their kids, you know, something to make. Right. So culture is imbued in our lives, but oftentimes people don't pay attention to it or they don't acknowledge it for what it is. And to celebrate that access and to um, highlight the importance of the creative community is hopefully something that will come out of this particular moment. We were talking about how important it is to advocate for culture in the broadest possible sense and to highlight the impact that artists have on our everyday life. And one of the things that I will endlessly proselytize about is that art is a basic human right, that it is not a privilege. And I'll just say it over and over and over again. And so I'm interested in whatever means there is to say that. It's tough because like the, the formal academic institutional, by the way, I'm also a professor, so I come from academia. So like the academic institutional realm is very white male old institution. And it's, it's basically, I feel like sometimes it's like too bloated on itself to a certain extent it's it's elevated itself to too high a status in in many ways that it, it can't perpetuate just period irrelevant to the fact that it's racist and sexist and all these other things but it just there has to be something else and it's that finding of that compromise that middle ground that gray area that will, will make it so that people feel like the culture and these opportunities are more accessible and that there's less of a barrier of entry to appreciation well there is something else it's just about how the light gets shined on it okay what how can we shine the light on it more so in my role at the Aspen Art Museum, I did more solo exhibitions of female artists and artists of color than any other institution in, in America that you know wasn't ethnically specific. And it wasn't because I was trying to champion 
any particular cause. I was just choosing the best, most interesting artists and using my platform for good. So the more that people, I think, are honest about the privilege of those platforms and, and the more they use them to bring diverse voices to the conversation, hopefully the more ripple effect that will have. Well, that, I mean, that's a, a an interesting topic that I have only touched on once or twice in the podcast, which is the, the, the issues of racism and sexism and stuff in the arts. Uh, I mean, I, I hope in the future to have very specific conversations just about this, but like from your position of being in the role of the arbiter of things. So you were, you know, sort of the head of something and now it, it was your ability to do it. Cause like I'm an artist and academic, I can only do so much, you know, I'm sort of from the ground up, but is it the roles of these institutions to address these things and, and sort of try to, is it about trying to balance it or is it about trying to like, what's the thing? Cause like, it's a tough discussion to have also because of course I'm an old white man from America. So like, it's kind of hard and I'm not sure how to even address it without getting myself in trouble. I think it's definitely the role of the institution to participate in the most complex conversations around art that are possible. And I think that museums have often been safe places for unsafe ideas. And I think that there is a requirement that comes with privilege to show the best, most interesting art and to invite as many people into the conversation as possible. So my perspective might differ a little bit from some other people's perspectives right now in that I think the art always has to come first. And so the, the work of art um, needs to be the most interesting and the best and the most relevant. And that has to come first. Um, so that for me is the fight that I want to fight. And part of that fight is bringing those voices to the table, but it has to, it has to come from the power of the individual work. Because what I know is that works of art can keep people company, they can make people mad, they can be surprising, they can keep people alive, they can change perspectives. And so the choices that I make need to be made from my place of um, intention and integrity and making the best possible choices that I can make. And knowing that the choices that I make will have an impact um, because people are looking. Okay. I have so many questions, but I, I want to just clarify something before I start down my little avenue of questions. Are you okay with talking about institutions and the institutional stuff since you are no longer actively in it? Of course. That's where okay. I spent my career. Okay, great. So. Okay. I have always been utterly fascinated with the process of how an institution decides on their programming. I mean, because like, I know if so, I, I've spoken with other people and I've known people through my career. Some, pe some places are 
publicity and big name money income driven some people are some institutions are more um, philosophically driven they have a, a, a core principles and programming that they're trying to address some thing that's necessary what did you do like what was your process of saying okay in the next three to five years i want to have exhibitions like this about this by these people like how did you come up with these ideas in the first place and then once you had your ideas how did you choose who would be the best representatives of that yeah that, i mean that's the question that everyone wants to ask but is often too afraid to so i'm glad you i'm glad that you did that's me being a fool there you go so my my career has been based on finding artists who i think are interesting and often doing their first one person museum exhibition either in the united states or in the world and what has proven itself over time is that not only did i do that but i was right so i have done these exhibitions with a lot of artists who at the time were unknown and have now come to become the artists that, that define our time. So that is what I've done throughout my career. I did that at all three museums where I worked. Um, I invited Olafur Eliasson to do his first major project in New York when I was at the Jewish Museum. That was in 1998. I did um, Peter Doig's first one-person museum exhibition in the United States. I have just I did that for tons of artists at the Aspen Art Museum as well. So yeah, you um, worked with Vic Muniz as well, right? I designed Vic Muniz's first exhibition catalog. Um, I love and, Vic Muniz. Love yep, him. and was able to take a group of people to his studio in Rio a few years ago. So. Yeah. He, he came and spoke at my master's program way back in 1999 when mm -hmm. he was just out of school and it was in, so he had come to the San Francisco Art Institute and did a lecture and he was the nicest guy, stayed for like two hours answering questions afterwards. Love him so much. Yeah. So Michael Govan, who's the director of the LA County Museum of Art is one of my closest friends. And he had said to me, a few years ago, if you don't tell your story, no one else will. And you have to pick the artists that you want to identify yourself with, and you have to stick by those artists over time. So, you know, who are your artists? And that has been one of my approaches. So there are a lot of artists who I have done exhibitions with, I've done books with, I've had them on the podcast, we've done talks and I've invited them to participate in different things. And so going back again and again um, and offering them opportunities, I'm working on a project again um, now with Rashid Johnson, I commissioned a ballet from him this summer. So coming up with interesting opportunities to allow the artists ways to expand their practice, expand their approaches to thinking the way they understand themselves and their art. That's one of the, the things that I've been interested in. So how I choose is it has to be the right artist at the right place, whether that's an institution or a TV project or, you know, a book, 
or an Instagram live, you know, at, at the right time. And it has to be productive and constructive. Um, it has to be a, a win, you know, for, for everyone. So I also only choose artists who I feel like I can be of service to. So for example, Fred Tomaselli is a, a long um, time friend of mine and I've invited him to do a bunch of different things. We've collaborated a lot over time. And when I invited him to do an exhibition at the Aspen Art Museum, it was because I felt that I could offer something to the way his work was received in the larger world um, that hadn't been done. And so I, when I invited him to do that exhibition, I, I suggested that I would do a taxonomic reading of the work and divide it into traditional art historical categories. So still life, landscape, portraiture, and organize the exhibition in that way. And he, he said, that is a terrible idea. And he told the story to the press too. And I was like, well, will you just think about it? He's like, I'll think about it, but that like that, that idea sucks. And I was like, okay, just, you know. So, and then he went away and he thought about it and he's like, okay, I still don't think it's a good idea, but like, I trust you. So like, go ahead. So that's how I curated that show. And it went to the Tang Museum. It traveled to the Brooklyn Museum. Um, and he later said that it changed the way that he understood his work. So it not only changed the broader interpretation of the work and understanding of the work, but it also impacted the way he saw his own work. And so that is a key factor for me in choosing who I work with, because I, I don't know, I like to pull my own weight. I like to give, you know, I want to make sure that I have something to offer, not just take. Well, and that's one of the things that I keep running into as far as like conversations with people uh, at different levels in the arts industry is that the best relationships are the ones where both people have something to bring to the table. So like if one person is potentially using the other person to, as leverage to whatever, to a stepping stone to something else or vice versa, the kind of thing, it, it often doesn't work very well. Or if it does work well, it doesn't last for very long. And that the best ones are these really great, almost like, you know, relationships. It's almost like dating somebody because you have to meander through different time periods and different situations. Absolutely. I mean, all relationships are relationships. For me, there isn't really a delineation between how I want to show up in my life and how I want to show up in art. Hmm. Okay. So when you would make it and it's so you'd come up with a, a, a well I guess, okay so the first thing about the sort of the idea of putting together an exhibition do you approach it as i'm look i i have an artist and now i want to figure out how to present that artist or do you have a concept and then you find the artist to fit an a, a sort of a programmatic idea well if it's a solo show then it's about the artist first um and then you know, oftentimes I'll, I will invite an artist to do an exhibition or a project because there's something I want to figure out. And I often don't know what my approach to that exhibition will be when I make the initial ask. So for example, I did an exhibition with Adam McEwen and I just kept seeing the work in a variety of different places. And it just kept kind of giving me pause. I kept being stopped by it. I kept being intrigued by it. I kept wanting to understand more about it. 
So I asked him if he wanted to do a show and he said yes and wanted to know what the show would be about. And I said, well, it can be new work. It can be something we can collaborate on. I can curate it. If I curate it, then I would want some time to look at your work and and suggest to you what we might consider. Um, he said, no, I'd like you to curate my show. So I said, all right, I'm going to get an image of every work you've ever made and I'm going to spend time with it. So I got an image, uh, and this is the way I work. I got an image of every work that he ever made, and I would just look through it and put it aside and then come back to it and look at it again and, you know, come back to it and start to think about it, you know, what I notice in the work, you know, if there are patterns, if there's repetition, if there is something that seems key to the intention. And in that circumstance, I realized that what I wanted to do was to curate a show about the role of death in his work. And I had to, you know, go to the studio and say, hey, this is something that I find in your work and that I'd love to explore. And he was like, huh, okay. So all of the works in that exhibition, he you know, said yes, had some reference to my idea of death. So, you know, he makes these incredible obituaries for people that are still alive. And, you know, that made sense, okay, that that would go in the work. And then he made works about when Mussolini was hung. So, you know, that that makes sense, right? So some are more obvious. But then he made these graphite works of the TSA bins that we all put our, you know, keys in and our, you know, phones and, and whatever. And so I included those in the work. Um, because that is about, you know, preventing death, right? Or um, every time you put your stuff in one of those bins, you know, you think about the people that were on the planes on 9-11 or what could happen, right? The, the possibility, um, not necessarily the probability, but the possibility of death. And one of the works that I put in the show was this graphite yoga mat, um, not just because I practice yoga, um, but because the practice of yoga is about staving off death, right? So that gives you a, a concrete example of, of an answer to your question. Oh, sorry, it was a two-part question. So the other part of your question is, if it's a group exhibition, yes. then I have the concept in mind first, and then I go and look for works of art to prove or disprove that point. So... I did an exhibition for the Flag Art Foundation in New York, and it was called Funny, period. And I wrote about that exhibition in the catalog. Wait, and fun, said, funny, funny, period, all spelled out, or funny and then the punctuation mark, period? Funny, and then the punctuation mark okay. of a period. So, for example, when someone would say something, and you would say, funny. Got it. Okay, so not funny, not funny, not, right? So very monotone, you know, kind of like just funny. More like noted, okay? Got it. I understand. Noted. Noted. Funny. Okay. So then I went looking for works of art that would be, for me, funny, but not hysterical and, you know, right in that space. So it's super personal. And in the essay for that catalog, I the first sentence was, 
I always had to remind my husband that I'm funny. Okay. It's my former husband, um, but was my, I think my, still my husband at the time. So that was an exhibition that I wanted to do because I had a, a point to make. That you were funny. I am funny. Okay. Fair enough. <laughs> I'm not here to question whether you're funny. It's okay. You have a nice laugh. So yeah, I believe you. Thank you. So then, but then the next question that I have along that line. So like, so now you've come up with an idea or let's say you're doing the group show. So, so how do artists even get on the radar of people at your level as a, you know, head of an institution kind of thing? Because I always see it as like, there's, I feel like, yeah, I don't even know. I mean, literally I'm at a complete loss. I have no idea how that happens. How do artists even get on your radar? <laughs> Like, cause I, I was thinking I had an idea of how they do and I'm, I can't even draw a line of how an artist from a studio, you know, it would be like through an independent curator that maybe then knows a gallery and the gallerist then maybe knows somebody or a collector or like, there, I know there's some relationship of some people that somehow it gets there. How does that work? So when you're directing an art museum or curating for an art museum, I really felt like my place was not to find an artist that had no exhibition history because museums have a historical responsibility, both to the past, but also to the future. So once a work enters a museum, it has a certain place in the continuum of the history of art. And so I do not feel that it's a museum's role to discover an artist who's never been discovered before. So there, there's, there are different places where that can happen. There are people who are running alternative spaces or who are writing for art publications, you know, who might go to an art school, an MFA show or a BFA show and find someone that no one else has seen before. But I don't feel that that's the role of a museum um, because museums need to be responsible for their place in the history of art. So, you know, given that as a, a fact, um, which is, you know, arguably my fact, but but taking that as a fact. I like that idea. I think that's a, a very good position to be taking. I, I do too. I think it's I think it's defensible. So so given that, the way that I find artists is through art magazines, art fairs, galleries, following other the, the decisions of other museum curators or other museum directors, um, going to biennials. And for me, I think it's really important to be in front of works of art. I love going to the artist studio. I'm super interested in the intention behind why a work of art gets made. And so I did an exhibition last year at the Aspen Art Museum, which was called Zombies, colon, pay attention, exclamation point. You've probably realized that I like punctuation. Uh, I, think I wasn't going to say anything, important. but yeah. Okay. <laughs> and part of how I did that show was I worked with a curatorial assistant and asked um, the curatorial assistant to reach out to some of the galleries that you know we often would work with and say, hey, do you know if any of your artists are interested in zombies? 
um, have they made any zombie work? Uh, and then as I would, you know, go to a dinner for a museum opening or a gallery show, and I happened to be seated next to an artist, I would say like, hey, are you interested in zombies? Like, have you made any zombie work? And so like, it was sort of through word of mouth as well. And that was one of the things that I think was really cool about that show is that it had the book on how to survive the zombie apocalypse has like basically 10 steps and it was long time New York bestseller list um, item. And that exhibition had a combination of text-based pieces, which I used as sort of rules for the art world or rules for living, and then also kind of zombie works. So um, one of the key works in that exhibition is one of my favorite works of all time, and hopefully it's okay to swear, but it's Bruce Nauman's work, Pay Attention Motherfuckers. And so there were different text-based works in the show that, that gave these kind of rules, or an Adam McEwen work, which said, oh shit, oh shit, oh shit, dot, dot, dot. And then there were works which had very specific references to zombie culture, um, whether it was zombie films, like a work by um, Cafe. And so the works ended up in that show really through um, community and conversation. Wow, okay. I love how you're answering these questions. This is fabulous. Thank you. Yeah, no, I mean, one of my things that I love about the podcast is, is that you, it's not just yes, no answers, but it's actual like long, elaborate stories. It's, it, it's like, I feel like we're being um, more like um, bards sort of sharing stories and, tra- you know, passing them on to the next generation instead of just going yes, or the way to do it is A to B to C. Like it's not, the art world is not a how to, and there's no step-by-step, there's no Excel spreadsheet or formula as much as I wish there was, there's not. Um, and it, it takes sort of just in listening to stories to figure out ways that things work. So I like the way you're doing this. It's good. Thank you. All right. I'm trying to think, okay, wait here, I'm going to turn it on you. You said, I asked the question that nobody, that everybody wants to ask, but nobody does. Are there any other questions that you always thought that people wanted to know and you never got asked them before? I think one of the things that I have been really concerned about over time is a dearth of curiosity. We started a program, a young curators program, where we were training high school students to be curators. And for me, that has always been an indicator of what's happening in culture based on how curious high school students are and how courageous or not they are. And I am a mom and I've always also used my kids as a barometer of what's interesting. So as our educators would come up with summer camps, I would bring them home and originally read them out loud to my kids and then eventually they could read them themselves and and they would say like oh that one's boring no one's going to sign up or um, that one's interesting or that the name for that camp is you know is bad or you know can you do a camp about you know x y or z so i have always said ask me anything and have always been interested in that that dialogue and and that exchange. And I remember I worked as a curator in New York and 
always went to all of my meetings and to work every day, frankly, in, in a suit or a jacket. And then I moved to California to be a curator at a museum there and went to give my first talk. And I think it actually may have been at the San Francisco Art Institute. That may have been my first talk when I moved cross country and I went in a suit when and I, that would have been in 1999. I was there. There you go. I may have been in the audience. You may have been in the audience. And I came and gave the talk, wore a suit and asked for any questions and not a single question. And I realized afterward, the feedback that I got was that the presentation was so tight and so compelling and so specific that it didn't give space for people to ask questions. It was unintentionally intimidating. So the next time I gave a talk, I wore casual clothes uh, and I started off my talk talking about the worst show that I ever curated. Yes, it's a much better approach. Way better. And then I got tons of questions. Well, because it makes you personable instead of mm -hmm. um, authoritative. Authoritative. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I mean, I remember those kinds of lectures and I remember the, the lectures where people would come in and basically just stand up there and give a, I am knowledge and I will give you my knowledge versus I want to have a conversation. So I have some knowledge and I'd like to hear some of your questions. Like the, they were very different um, for sure. I mean, don't get me wrong. I, I remember some of those authoritative ones that were amazing. You know, they were, they, they are very informative, but not necessarily very engaging. So the director of education at the Berkeley art museum, when, when I worked there was a woman named Sherry Goodman, and she had come from the museum of modern art in New York to the Berkeley art museum. And I was running the matrix program and doing these solo exhibitions. I, I did 40 solo exhibitions with artists in six and a half years. And I always invited the artists to come and I always engaged them in a, in a dialogue. And I remember getting ready for one of them and I had prepared one of my traits and tendencies is that I over-prepare. And I had all these notes and, and she pulled me aside and she said, Heidi, I just wanna let you know that you know more about this topic than anyone in the room today. And you don't need any notes, you know, just listen, just be present, just respond to what you hear. And I was super nervous to do it. My heart was beating really fast, but she put her hand out and she took my notes and she said, you'll, you'll be fine. And I never prepared with notes ever after that again. And now as I do my podcast, um, I'm planning one for later in the week and, and the assistant of the person that I'm having a conversation with said they, they like to get the questions in advance. And I said, I don't prepare the questions in advance. It's a conversation. And same thing happened. I had Sarah Thornton on my podcast recently and, and she said, will you send me the questions? I said, I don't send them and I don't have them. And at the end of our podcast, she said, you know what? You're right. You don't need the questions. And she said, I would have thought given our conversation today that you had all those questions lined up, but you didn't. So 
Well, it's because you care, like you actually have an interest in the topic. And so it's really easy to come up with questions because you actually want to know the answer. Much like me, like all these questions I'm asking you, I actually want to know the answer to these. So like, I don't need to research these things because I've been asking these things for 25 years. And now I finally have somebody in front of me that can give me an answer. <laughs> okay. I have another question for you. Okay. institutional thing when I always wonder, is there an internal debate uh, within yourself? So like, so this is really just like your experience about when you're setting up your programming and deciding on your exhibitions, are you trying to be progressive and create the next idea or trend or whatever word you want to put to it? Or are you aware of sort of current interests and you're following a little bit while maybe pushing a little bit? I always wanted to predict trends rather than reflect them. And when I was putting together an exhibition schedule, there were different questions that I would ask myself. I would, I would put it together and then I would go back and see how it would feel in terms of some quantitative things, you know, um, male, female, photography, painting, geographic representation. But then I would think about things like temperature and I would play with having sort of cooler or conceptual projects like in the winter and, you know, warmer and, you know, generative and kind of, bursting projects in the spring. And so it was kind of a combination of a lot of experience and also really trusting my intuition about what would feel right. It makes sense having heard it, though I never think I noticed it at an institution, but I, yeah. It, I don't know that anyone else does that. that. That was just my practice. It's a good practice. I mean, because what worked, well, that's the thing is, is like an, an institution is not an Island. <laughs> like it, okay. it is, it still influences it both influences and is influenced by the community that it's in or the, the, whatever the, you know, it's other, um, peers kind of thing. So like it, it's not just, uh, ivory tower and, and dictating, this is good to do this. Like there, there has to be a, a give and take and a, a conversation with its own community and with its own um, supporters and peers and whatever else it has to talk to. Yeah. I mean, an institution is an organic being, so it needs to be cared for and it needs to be protected and it needs to be sustained and um, it needs to be acknowledged. Okay. Talking about the community around an institution, not to be like utter absurdist, but like how do these places choose the people that are on their boards? I was always interested in what I called the three W's wisdom, work and wealth. I, that's the thing is, is like it basically it, from an outsider's perspective, it always looks like it's basically rich, powerful people. Wisdom. <laughs> work. Hmm? Right. And wealth. 
any last things that you want to touch on that we have not brought up yet that you think are compelling things that maybe the public wants to know? One of the things that I think is really important right now is to give people tools on how to look at art. I think that it's important to give people the opportunity to access art and to make art available. And I think that if people don't feel confident in their abilities to look, let alone see, then it's a short path. So one of the things that I have worked on is a list of, for example, five questions that people can ask themselves in front of works of art. I'm guessing this is going to be part of your TV show. It could be. Yeah, it's okay. It's great. I love that. I mean, originally when I thought of a podcast, I thought of doing like a 10 questions, consistent 10 questions that you ask the same, the, everybody over and over and see what the different answers are, much like uh, inside the actor's studio kind of thing. But then it was like, well, but it's already been done and done beautifully by the actor's studio, so I'm not doing it. How do you feel about the virtual museums that are popping up right now, virtual exhibitions, virtual museums? What's your position on those? It really goes to my answer to the last question, which is if you just keep doing the same thing over and over again and expect a different result, that's the definition of insanity, right? Correct. So I think bringing as many people to art as possible is a great thing. And I think if you just keep doing it in the same way, it's not going to end up with a different result. A beautiful way to end this podcast. So thank you very much for your time. Thank you so much for the conversation. I enjoyed it. <laughs>